Opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and do not necessarily reflect views held by the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. This is Karen Campbell, co-chair of the SASE Committee. I want to welcome everybody to our program on employment of people with dual sensory loss. Um, in a moment, I will uh, introduce my uh, co-chair, Carl, who will take, who will moderate this program. But first of all, for those who need CEU codes, the beginning code is six seven zero seven six. That is six seven zero seven. Six. Now I will turn it over to Carl Richardson from Massachusetts to introduce the panel. Carl, Good go ahead. Thank you, Karen. This is Carl Richardson. I am an ADA coordinator for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. I have Usher syndrome type two, so I identify as a deafblind person who has low vision, and I'm hard of hearing, and I am thrilled to have these amazing panelists on the show today so that we can learn from them. They're all very successful at what they do, and hopefully they'll give us some good coping strategies for those who wonder how they um, remain successfully employed. First, I would like to, first we're going to start with Chris Bell, who is an attorney, who is also has a dual sensory loss. And he's going to talk a little bit about employment under the obligations of the Title I of the ADA. No. So, Chris, please take it away. Thank you, Carl. Thank you, Karen. Uh, and I thank Sassy for the invitation. So um, <clears throat> I've been doing disability rights work for a long time. And I was one of the uh, disabled attorneys who helped to write the ADA. And I was in charge of the ADA at EEOC and uh, oversaw the development of that agency's employment regulations. Um, so for much of this panel, I think we'll be talking about reasonable accommodation. But I want to recognize that sometimes people don't need accommodation. Uh, sometimes people are perfectly capable of doing all of the essential functions of the job, uh, even with a dual uh, sensory uh, loss. And sometimes they're just discriminated against because people assume they can't do it. And uh, <clears throat> the most, uh, most common cases are about uh, deaf people, not deaf blind people, but deaf people who apply for uh, driving and trucking jobs. There was a recent case filed by the EEOC against Warner Enterprises who refused to hire a deaf truck driver, even though he had a commercial driver's license and he had a waiver of the what are the federal motor carrier safety regulations that have hearing standards, and they, they just refused to hire him. And it wasn't a question of accommodation. Uh, he had experience, he had the licensure, he'd been driving for uh, six months for another carrier, and they just refused. So that comes up um, in cases, sometimes just plain old vanilla type discrimination. But um, 
when we talk about reasonable accommodation, um, we're talking about steps that an employer takes in response to a person's disability-related limitations to enable that person to do all of the essential functions of the job. And these steps can include things like providing qualified sign language interpreters and providing different assistive technology devices or equipment, such as by uh, being able to do text to voice. Um, I'm not going to discuss different kinds of accommodations for folks who are dual sensory uh, because you guys know more about that than I do. Um, the deal with reasonable accommodation is that the employer really needs to work with whether we're talking about an applicant or a current employee who has become disabled or the job's changed and try to figure out how to be, that person can be accommodated to do all of the essential functions. And um, so that means really a discussion, uh, whether it's in writing or text or sign language interpreter, doesn't matter, but there has to be some interaction. And um, there is an organization called the Job Accommodation Network, which is a clearinghouse of possible accommodations uh, by job function and by disability type that uh, a person with a disability can go on and, and look at and so can an employer. And also the Job Accommodation Network provides, I believe, free consulting services to employers who are trying to figure out how a particular applicant or employee can be accommodated. So that's, that's a very important uh, resource to consider if you're trying to figure out um, how you're going to do a job. And it's really important from the standpoint of the person with a disability that we know all of the essential functions of the job and that we understand how those functions are typically carried out by people that don't have disabilities. Why is that? Because if our vision loss or our hearing loss is going to interfere with how the job is customarily done, then that's where accommodation comes in. And so we, we need to have a lot of information sometimes to come up with possible accommodations. Um, now, the employer gets to pick the accommodation or accommodations that a person uses. Uh, the employer gets to pick it, but the accommodation has to be effective. Uh, an employer doesn't have to provide an accommodation that would constitute for the employer an undue hardship. So in that context, I would say, if you're a, a person with dual sensory loss and you need qualified sign language interpreting on a regular basis, you're probably gonna wanna work for a larger employer because they will have the resources, um, whereas a smaller employer might not. And therefore it might be an undue hardship. 
And I think that's my summary, Carl. I'll turn it over to you and to the panel. I'm happy to answer any questions as they come up. So Chris, are you gonna stick around? I'm going to stick around. Okay, so this is Carl. So it's my understanding that employment basically falls under Title I of the ADA and you can't not hire someone, meaning you can't choose not to hire someone because of a disability. You have to consider them for promotion. You can't not consider them for promotion and you can't fire them because of their disability. And you have to provide reasonable accommodations and effective communications. Is that basically what Title I covers? Yes, but the fine print is it's not necessarily easy to prove why an employer did something. Okay. Uh, so that's always the rub when you do these litigate when you do this kind of litigation. Chris, are you still a practicing attorney as a person? No, I'm retired. Okay. All right. Thank you. So I'm going to thank you, Chris, and thank you for helping out in the writing of the ADA, which is very instrumental in all of our lives. This is Carl. Next. So here's how it's going to go today for all of you. For the purposes of communication access and communication, one person will speak at a time. I'm going to have each panelist go one at a time. So to cut down on confusion, they will all be asked the same questions. And then at the very, very end, after all, all four panelists go, we will open up the floor for questions to the public at large. So first, because I know Kerry Thompson has a other commitment um, in about an hour, I'd like to start with Kerry Thompson who works for the Disability Rights Fund in Boston, Massachusetts. And Kerry, I would like you to start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your job title, what do you do, and what is your preferred style of communication? Hi, everyone. This is Kerry Thompson speaking. Thank you, Carl, and thank you, Karen, for having me. And as Carl said, I work for the Disability Rights Fund. My title at DRF is called Senior Officer for Communication, Inclusion, and Analytics. One thing that's important to understand about Disability Rights Fund is that it's an international organization so not only are we trying to comply with the American with Disabilities Act, we're also trying to comply with United Nations Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities that also has a built-in language about reasonable accommodation. And what I do for DRF is about trying to, there's many different hats I wear at DRF. I'm the first hire at DRF, aside from the executive director, so I've definitely evolved in the job over the years. It's been almost 14 years. And what I currently do right now is I manage most of the communications, such as the websites, um, social media, different communication needs and publications and writing stories and communicating our work and also trying to make sure that our communications is empowering. The other aspect of my work the inclusion part is to make sure that everyone, our, our grantees, our staff, our board members, and our grant making committee members all have the access they need to do their job and or to participate fully. 
And the third aspect of my job is the analytics part. So I analyzed over the years how our grantees are progressing in their work, how much they are doing to improve, how much help they need, and just basically understanding what's still needed for them to advance their work. And what was the other question you asked me, Carl? Um, um, what my communication preference is? Yes. Okay. Um, so I'm a person who has Usher's syndrome type 1C, and I use a variety of communication methods. I'm oral, so I speak verbally, and I can lip read, um, depending if um, the environment is conductive for me to be able to see enough to lip read. Right now, it's actually not very easy for me to lip read, especially with all the masks that people are wearing. I use sign language and I also use Braille. So what my preference is tends to be related to what the setup of the meeting is. Is it in person? Is it virtually? If it's in person, does it depend on the person that I'm talking with? Are they easy for me to communicate or not? So I should stop here, right, Carl? Yeah, that's fine. So when you were hired, how did you make the decision to disclose your disability? Did you disclose it all? Did you do it while you were being hired, after? I know this is a personal decision that each person has to face, but what's your story? Um, yes, it is. This is Carrie. It was actually because I'm working for a disability rights fund, you know, they really do encourage people with disabilities to apply for the organization. And I found out about this job as initially when they were looking for an intern, the executive director needed help as she was putting the organization together. So I reached out to her and I did identify myself as a deaf person. And she liked that. She liked to have another person with a disability for this organization that should be up people with disabilities and let's see I forgot one other thing to mention is that I'm also the executive director for Silent Rhythm but I know for the purpose of today we'll focus more on my work at Disability Rights Fund. No Carrie this is Carl I think people would like to hear about Silent Rhythm, Rhythm just so okay. they know that deafblind people have a broad spectrum of interest and abilities. Okay, great, great. Um, yes, so the other thing that I do is I'm the executive director for Silent Rhythm and Silent Rhythm is a nonprofit organization. I started um, years ago. It initially started as a way to teach people who were deaf how to dance. But over time, it expanded to be about teaching people disabilities how to dance. And then it evolved even more to being about using the arts as a way to promote inclusion of people with disabilities and the arts and also in society. This is Carl. So I think Carrie's biggest challenge in her career was trying to teach me and my wife how to do the salsa. <laughs> uh, you guys did fine. All right, next. What type of reasonable accommodation do you do use in your daily 
day to day in your job? I use different type of accommodation. And again, it depends on the environment, whether it's meeting in person or virtually. And a lot of the functions that I do for my work, I'm actually accommodated through what's already built in my computer, such as using color inversion and other types of technology. But what defined under reasonable accommodation, I use sign language interpreters if the meeting is in person and if it's a large meeting, especially if it's a large meeting. When I'm doing a remote meeting or a virtual meeting, I use captioning because it's too difficult for me to see sign language on a video. So this is called, are you using tactile signing? Or close up? Uh, yes, I do use tactile sign language and pro-tactile. And I usually prefer, and sometimes it also depends if I'm able to put a sign language interpreter at a significant distance from myself without anyone walking in between us, I would use that for like a large meeting. But if I'm talking one-on-one -on -one with a person and they're standing right next to me, I use tactile sign language. What, I think you already uh, answered this a little bit, but what type of technology do you use in your job on a daily basis? Yes, um, I use color inversion. I use magnification, making font size larger. Um, sometimes I'm switching back and forth between trying to also use a screen reader. I'm just starting to learn how to really use a screen reader for the more complicated function and trying to switch back and forth between using JAWS on a PC and VoiceOver on a Mac device. When you use a screen reader, are you doing it um, auditorily or are you using it through a braille display? Um, I'm using it through a braille display. I'm also using it through captioning, which sounds odd, but with a Mac device, I'm able to use the screen reader and the captioning is reading, the captioning is actually reading what the screen reader is saying. And I don't mean captioning like cart, but just this automatic feature that is used in the Mac computer. And I've try, I'm trying to help myself learn what screen readers say because there's all, all these other things that they're saying that is not part of an email, but basically what page, all this general kind of code and function. So I'm trying to look at the caption to understand what screen readers generally say uh, because I'm not quite there yet to use it fluently with a braille display. Do you have any communication strategies that you use in your job? One thing I believe not just professionally, but personally is to always put as many tools in your tool belt. So if you don't need the tool now, it's really good to get the tool now to learn now while maybe it's easier so that when the time comes and you need to use the tool, it's there and ready for you. 
that's the communication strategy I did with when it came to Braille. I learned Braille about five years ago. And at the time, I could still see enough that I knew that over time, my eyesight would get worse. And I wanted to learn Braille while it would still be something that I could use my eyesight to help me learn while trying to learn with the touch. And so I'm so glad I did that. And now I use Braille pretty frequently. It would be hard to wait until you can't see at all to then try to learn Braille. It's possible, but it's also about trying to find the ways to make your life just a bit easier. This is Carl. How do your peers receive you? Do they see you as an equal? Um, yes, I have a really great team and many of us work together as equals and as a team player. One thing that's important for me to mention is that in the 14 years at Disability Rights Fund, I've been the only person on the staff who is deaf or even deafblind. So sometimes this always feels like the disconnect between the deaf and hearing world. Most of my team are pretty accommodating to that. Not everyone treats me as an equal, but I think that can be the case anywhere. And often those that don't treat me as an equal are people which people without disabilities. How did you get your job? Was it through a state agency, a referral? Did you get it on your own? I think you already answered this a little bit, but maybe you could just elaborate. I said it a little bit and it was just like seeking the opportunity myself and just keeping your ears and eyes open. And someone told me about an opportunity to be an intern. And so I reached out and interviewed with the executive director and she hired me as the intern. And I also actually did it as part of my coursework at Harvard. So if those people who are in college I highly recommend trying to find a way to do an internship or a field study program because that often does lead to full-time employment when you graduate. Great. What is the biggest challenge that you face on a daily basis? I think one of my biggest challenges on a daily basis is that anyone who has a progressive disability type, meaning that it can get worse over time, is that what works for me yesterday may not work today or will not work at all for me tomorrow. And so my disability is always evolving. And at the same time, technology and society is always evolving, you know, especially through the pandemic, everything has changed so much that it's just a matter of trying to constantly adapt, whether the, ch the changes are internal within myself or through the environment. So Carrie, you're obviously very successful. Uh, hold on. All of you, you're very successful. Do you have any particular coping strategies that you want to share that you have not yet? Uh, actually, you made me laugh a little bit when you said you're very successful. Oh, hold on. Were you checking if I was indeed successful? 
<laughs> I would listen in the jaws at the same time I was posing the question. <laughs> um, yeah, so what else? I would, so something I would advise people to do is that you may, once you get a job, don't settle within the job as seek grow with opportunity. So if you're not getting those opportunities within your job, you can stay at the job, of course, but seek opportunity outside of your job. And that's, I did that and I got a lot of fellowship opportunities and that really helped me grow to even do my job better. Great. Um, that's all the questions I have. Uh, if you have anything else you wish to add before I move on to the next panelist. Uh, no, that's it. I'm really happy I could be here. I can stay on until 3.30. Um, and if anyone has questions, you could send them to me by email and I can respond to them later. Okay, great. Would well, you want to go ahead and give your contact information now? Or are we allowed to do that, Karen? This is Carla. Are we allowed to do that? Oh, sure, no problem. Okay. Uh, personal information, no, is my okay. understanding. A business a, a email would be fine. Okay, Carrie, this is Carl. Please go ahead and give out your email if you wish. Okay, so you can contact me at Disability Rights Fund. Um, the email address is k-t-h-o-m-p-s-o-n at disability rightsfund.org. And Carrie, I will be seeing you next week in a salsa class, I believe. Excellent. I can't wait to see you and Shimmy. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And um, can I say what at the bottom or is that confidential? No, go, go ahead. So there's a woman by the name of Rebecca Alexander, who wrote a book on what it's like to go through a dual century loss. It became a bestseller. Netflix has picked up her story to turn into a movie. And next week, the director of that Netflix movie is going to be filming Carrie teaching some of us salsa. So I'm finally going to get my chance to have my 15 minutes. <laughs> Okay, next, I'd like to go to the other coast in no particular order. I'm just going randomly. I'd like to introduce Megan Conway, who works at the Helen Keller National Center. And Megan, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, your title, uh, your vision loss, and your preferred style of communication. Sure. Um, hi, everyone. This is Megan Conway. Let me um, change one setting. Okay, um, so I am currently a research and accessibility specialist at the Helen Keller National Center. I've been in that position for two years. Prior to that, I was a professor at the University of Hawaii Center on Disability Studies for 18 years. So I, I thought it would be actually good to maybe speak a bit to both of those experiences today because they do kind of contrast in terms of, of my experience at both organizations. Um, in, my, in my current work, um, I was actually initially hired to um, 
to provide support, uh, support and feedback on the accessibility of different materials and courses that, that Helen Keller runs, uh, and also to advance the, the research that we do at the center so that we uh, can do more research on best practices around deafblindness and rehabilitation for deafblind people, uh, collaborate with universities um, to enhance um, and expand research on deafblindness because there really is very little uh, research compared to a lot of other disability areas. Um, that was, a, was originally hired for, but um, in part due just to my the variety of skills that I have from being in higher education for so long because of the pandemic and the fact that there was a lot of role switching, a lot of all hands on deck at Helen Keller. I have also um, become increasingly involved in uh, teaching advocacy, advocacy courses for deafblind folks, in uh, supporting professional development and uh, working on curriculum and just a hodgepodge. I'm, I'm sort of, um, you know, as my skills are needed and things come up, I, I jump in a lot. Uh, my prior work at the university, I was actually also involved in research and professional development. I coordinated um, and taught in a graduate disability certificate program, um, disability studies program. I edited a journal for many, many years, the Review of Disability Studies. Um, and I guess I, I, I've had quite a, um, quite a varied career overall in, in my uh, various experiences. I do uh, identify as deafblind. I have always had a combined hearing and vision loss, but I've had quite a lot of fluctuation over time. Uh, when I first entered um, college a number of years ago, I experienced a, a quite a significant decrease in my hearing, um, and my vision has um, gone up and down quite a bit. Um, I've actually currently I've been having some surgeries this past year and I've experienced the um, greatest amount of, of visual loss that I've ever had, although it's I mean, kind of an odd position because it, it could get better. Um, they're working on getting it better. So um, I'm in sort of a funny adaptation stage of having to use more um, different strategies to adapt to my vision loss. But in the back of my mind is like, oh, this might not be permanent. Um, I do prefer speech. I've always used speech and actually had fairly good speech recognition with appropriate amplification. So I use um, big old honky hearing aids. I use an assistive listening device, uh, which is very helpful. I do have um, sign language, you know, I do know ASL. Um, I'm not fluent, uh, but I, I can kind of get by with ASL. And sometimes I, I do find, um, particularly if I'm not wearing my hearing aids or I'm having trouble understanding if somebody does know ASL, um, a little bit of ASL backup uh, sometimes helps me. So, um, and I'm gonna ask this question in terms of your career in higher ed, because my wife works in higher ed, and I know there are some biases that could be built into higher ed. Because you know, identifying as a deafblind person at the Helen Keller Center, I don't think necessarily hurt you; it probably helped you. But did when you worked in higher ed, did you disclose before, during, 
Uh, how did you go about disclosing when you worked in higher ed? Um, well, I, I want to speak to both components of what you just said. Um, and I will say that, you know, absolutely, I disclosed for Helen Keller. Um, and it is, an, uh, I would say, an advantage to be a deafblind applicant uh, for a job at Helen Keller. Um, but I, at the same time, having said that, um, you know, and it's a big part of my identity there. I think it gives me um, a certain credibility, but it's not like necessarily always the magic number. I mean, most of the employees at Helen Keller are not deafblind, and there's a lot of folks who've been there for a long time. So, uh, you know, my experience with with the the deafblind identity there, although positive relative to higher education, um, you know, which I can talk about next, is, is you know, it's not. It, it just kind of depends on who your um, who you're working with, you know, there, there, it's hard sometimes for some professionals to separate themselves from the perception that you're a consumer, uh, you know, that there's that word, which I'm now on the, the rampage about, <laughs> I, I don't like that word, because it gets associated with my deafblind identity. So, you know, somebody will call me a consumer and label me as a consumer, equalize, you know, meaning that I'm deafblind. So they, they don't, don't separate out the person using services, you know, from the deafblind identity. So I just want to kind of, uh, I guess, t just throw that out there. Um, higher education, um, when I applied for my job, I actually did disclose my disability. Um, I, I went to UC Berkeley forever. Um, I was very, and there I really um, developed a very strong uh, disability identity, not just a deafblind identity, but a disability identity. I was, came very much from this position of being proud of my disability, uh, projecting it as an asset. Uh, but I will say um, after when I was wrapping up my doctorate and applying to, to jobs, I wrote a lot of letters to different um, departments uh, to different um, schools of education. That was my field education. And I disclosed my disability in all of those letters and said I was looking for a job uh, and I didn't get any responses. Um, and I did start to wonder, wow, you know, sh maybe I shouldn't have disclosed the fact that I'm deafblind. Maybe that was because I had a, you know, I, I'd written papers. I, I went to Berkeley. I, I, I felt I was very qualified for um, a faculty position and, and there was no, no uh, interest. How I ended up getting my job in Hawaii was actually through uh, a mentor in Berkeley who knew a, um, a disabled guy at the Center on Disability Studies. So it was a personal connection. Um, the director at the time um, did actually see my having a disability and being deafblind as an advantage. Uh, because again, at center, there was not very many people with disabilities working there. Um, so in that case, I did disclose it, but it was, it was via those personal connections. And because that, that particular um, leadership was looking to, to expand um, people with disabilities at that center. This is Carl. What type of accommodations do you use in your day-to-day -day jobs? So um, I use, you know, like most folks, I use technology, which is really important. Um, so I have um, Zoom text, I have a screen reader. Uh, I use um, 
I use an assistive listening device, but my employer did not purchase that. I, I have my own assistive listening device, but I um, connect it to the computer. I use my assistive listening device in one-on-one um, -on -one and uh, meeting types of situations. Um, one, one challenge I would say that I do have because I, um, in order to be able to hear well, people have to pass my microphone around. Um, this was a big difference between my, my previous job. It was, you know, I worked there for 18 years and it seemed like at every single meeting I had to explain to people that they needed to pass the microphone. And at every single meeting, it was a big deal. You know, I had, it was, um, it, I don't know. It, 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 it was, it amazed me how, what a big deal it could be. Um, and I was always having to, you know, it made me feel like I was a nag, you know, cause I had to keep saying, well, please pass the microphone. People would have side conversations all the time. I mean, I would miss a lot of the social interactions because they'd be like, oh, you know, I, you know, this is not important. Like people were always making those decisions for me about what was important and what wasn't important. Um, and Helen Keller, it's like night and day. I mean, one thing I will say, my experience there, it, it's very um, tuned into communication. There's a you know, staff whose specific job when you're at a meeting is to make sure that that communication is, is provided. So there's various kinds of interpreting situations going on. There's always somebody who takes charge of my microphone and passes it around. Um, there's interpreters there who will who will voice if there is a situation like we had a meeting um, in per back in in-person days where there was the um, we were talking to someone online, the sound was coming through uh, overhead speakers and I couldn't hear. So an interpreter grabs my microphone and, and just I mean, I didn't even have to ask. Um, they asked me, you know, do you want us to do this? So that has been um, particularly with the communication. It, it's been um, insightful for me, those those differences. Uh, one accommodation, and you know, I am not, I'm not a lawyer, so I can sort of say whatever I want. So if I tell you something, it doesn't mean it's covered by the ADA uh, or whatever. Um, but, but one area actually that um, come up of contention that's come up for me as a support all the way from when I was getting my doctorate, um, you know, even to the, to the present day, but mostly in higher education, is the need for human support. Um, so in my case, not, not an interpreter. I, I guess the closest thing would be an SSP, a support service provider. But in my case, it was more, um, I, I labeled it a research assistant when I was at school. Um, but I just needed somebody, there was such a vast amount of visual information I had to go through to write a paper, to do research. Um, even to participate in class, you know, that situation where I was having to try to monitor the microphone Well, I'm blind. I mean, sometimes I didn't even know somebody was speaking. Um, so someone to be there, it was like, um, again, I labeled it a research assistant, but it was a multifaceted human assistant. Um, and I had to, you know, I, I fought for that in, um, when I was getting my degree, I ended up being part of a lawsuit around um, issues of support for deaf students. When I was um, when I was in Hawaii, um, I requested that. I requested um, the, the nice thing about higher ed is there are a lot of graduate students um, who do grunt work 
for everybody. What I ended up doing there was just talking to the director about hiring a graduate assistant and not making it, not labeling it as a disability accommodation because he was concerned that the university would not pay for that because it wasn't you know, seen as being reasonable. So for most of my time um, in Hawaii, I just hired, you know, I had grant money. I just hired a graduate assistant and I used those assistants both for traditional um, work that a faculty might be doing, but kind of coupled with my support needs as a deafblind person. So um, that's something that can be, again, can sometimes address such a, a broad range of um, support needs for a deafblind person. And I think it's a, it is something that most deafblind people don't, don't get on the job because it's not always seen, you know, seen as being too expensive or not reasonable. Um, particularly if you don't have an intellectual disability, you know, you're seen as being this really smart, capable person you know, the fact of the matter is sometimes a human being is just the most efficient way of getting things done. What, um, you may have already answered this, but what type of, um, wait a minute. Do you have any communication strategies you want to share? Um, you know, one of them is just not feeling shame about your communication needs. Um, I think I really have been put in a lot of situations where that was, um, because I needed to ask for something to be repeated, because I needed to, to have people use my microphone, um, or even just, you know, so much miscommunication that goes on. Some of it's kind of funny, some of it's not, you know, where you think somebody said one thing and, you know, they said something else, or you um, just, to, you know, you waved at somebody, you thought they were waving at you, and it was somebody else. I mean, those are sort of classic examples, but I mean, that happens all the time when you're deafblind. It's pretty easy to have um, those kinds of situations where you your, your response is to feel shame or embarrassment. Um, I think for me, just getting over that and, and knowing for myself, you know, I have a right to communicate, particularly, particularly in the workplace. I mean, I have a legal right to, to communicate in the workplace. Um, but that I just have to, um, I just have to get out there and, and not be embarrassed about getting what I need uh, and making sure I understand things, you know, not just going, oh yeah, kind of smiling and pretending, but, but saying, I didn't get that. I don't understand. Um, let's think of another way to, you know, okay, I can't understand your speech. Let's, let's write it down or um, use a computer or say it in a different way. Or maybe this person that I can understand more clearly could repeat what you said. You, you have to just keep going until you figure it out. Do your peers, how do your peers interact with you? Do they treat you as an equal? <laughs> so, um, you know, it's so individual. So um, I would say at, at Helen Keller, um, I've been really happy overall with my interactions with my peers, but it's like in comparison to many years of, of struggling with that. Um, for, for the, you know, I mean, I love the fact that there's other deafblind people who work there. Um, I feel like I have a community. And um, at the same time, you know, most of the, of my other colleagues who are not deafblind that I interact with, um, you know, I, I feel like I, 
for the, for the most part, they, you know, I, I, I am equal. Um, there are, there are a few exceptions, like I sort of, like I said before, where sometimes it's like, I can't shake off that perception that I'm the person that they usually work with. Um, that, you know, they, there are folks that are still just have a hard time separating themselves from that, uh, professional role where they, where they kind of feel like they're better than, um, other people or smarter than other people. The, uh, you know, than deafblind people. So there, there's a few of those. Um, in higher education, it was, it wasn't, I, it was, it's interesting. It wasn't that my peers thought they were better than me necessarily. It was that they saw me as, um, I actually had people say that they thought I was arrogant, oh. um, that they thought I was um, above myself. I thought I, that they thought I thought I was better than other people. So maybe there was an element of them thinking they're better in that. But it, it had to do with the fact that I spoke up, that I advocated for myself, that I um, uh, actually also that that like if I was you know walking down the hallway and someone was coming towards me, I. I I didn't know who they were if I didn't know them well. And so there was a lot of times when I wouldn't say hi or smile or, you know, I was just trying to get from point A to point B. There were some really basic um, issues around communication and perception that were just constant for me. Um, I really felt like uh, an outsider a lot of the time in my, um, at the university. Uh, and I really didn't have, there was a few um, disabled, you know, other disabled faculty, but, but not nearly enough. I never really felt like I had the community that I needed to kind of buffer that, um, that negative perception. Uh, I think you already answered this a little bit, but how did you get your job? Um, in both cases, it was via um, mentors, um, folks with um, a disability or who were immersed in the disability community that knew me and encouraged me to reach out to um, specific people. So it was by, by personal connection um, in, in both cases with both of those jobs, uh, which you know, I would just expand on and say, I mean, this is an area that a lot of people with disabilities um, don't always have the opportunity to, um, they don't always have the opportunity to build mentors in the same way that, that other folks do. Everybody benefits from having mentors, you know, professional mentors and personal mentors. Um, for people with disabilities, uh, there's not always, sometimes it's just that you're so, you know, you're so busy just trying when you're in school, just trying to get work done, trying to pass your classes, trying to get the support you need. Uh, it's hard to, to find that time to seek out a mentor. Um, I was really lucky again, going to Berkeley, there was, there was uh, more than the usual number of, of disabled mentors around. Um, for me. And so, um, and then I, I just have always uh, sought out those relationships and, and they've been very, very beneficial. Um, 
what is the biggest, this is Carl, what is the biggest challenge you face on a daily basis? You know, I, I think it's actually, some of it has to do with, with, um, with myself. <laughs> um, it's, you know, I am, um, I'm an ambitious, intelligent person. I want to do everything. Um, I mean, I, um, I mean, that's why I, you know, got into higher education for so long. You know, I loved that environment of just the constant workflow, the, the ideas, um, doing, doing research, interacting with students. You know, I like that constant stimulation. Uh, but I end up a lot of the time getting very overwhelmed and thinking that I need to be doing more than, um, I almost like, I feel like I have to prove myself all the time. I think that's what I heard from a lot of of other um, deaf, blind, and disabled folks is, you know, you, you, you feel like you're under the spotlight to do, not just do your job, but do it better than anybody else. So that's a, you know, for me, that's in one way, it's, it's been the drive that got me through getting my doctorate, being a faculty member, um, coming to Helen Keller and just jumping, you know, right in. Um, but on the other hand, I just sometimes I get in these situations where I just can't manage it all. I, I sort of, uh, um, it, it's, it's hard for me to step back and say that sometimes it's okay to just do my job. I don't always have to do it perfectly or better than anybody else. And lastly, any strategies you want to share with anybody that you have not already done so? Um, I, I think what, what, from... It was interesting for me um, this last year teaching the advocacy course. So it was an online course with deafblind people from all over the US. The folks that I was, um, that were taking the class were, had a variety of, um, you know, some of them were, um, they used a variety of kinds of communication. There was some folks um, with intellectual disabilities, some without. It was really a variety of people. Uh, and I heard a lot of stories um, about what people went through in employment, about the fact that, that literally most of, most of um, the folks in the, in, the, in the course were not employed um, and, and struggled to get employment. Uh, and I think that some of it is just, it is outright discrimination. It's something that we face all the time. Um, but I heard a lot of stories about, about where employers, it seemed like, um, it seemed like the barrier a lot of the time really was this focus on reasonableness. I hate to say it, but it, I really, I wished, I, I kept advising people, you know, it doesn't hurt to ask for what you need. Don't be like, they would already be calculating in their brain before they made a request for an accommodation. Are, you know, is it reasonable? Will they pay for it? Is it, you know, maybe I'm just asking too much. And my advice was always, you know, for heaven's sake, you, you have a right to be there, to be employed. You're a person with a lot of capabilities. You're just, you know, you're deaf blind and you need some support. So think about, you know, what is, 
uh, you know, like Chris was saying at the beginning, having that idea about, you know, what the job is, what it takes to do the job, what your quote, typical person does to do the job. And then what do I need as a deafblind person in order to, in order to do that, and not just at the minimum, but to do it well, to have a career, to be successful in my career and advocate for those things. Um, and that, that would be my, my bottom line um, advice. Great. Do you have any contact information you want to share with people? Yes. I can give you my, my email at the Helen Keller National Center. So it's, um, it's my name separated with a period. It's M-E-G-A-N dot C-O-N-W-A-Y at H-K-N-C dot O-R-G. All right, thank you, Megan. Thank you. Next, we're gonna go from California back to Massachusetts, and we're going to um, speak to Hannah DeFilippe, who works currently for, and I get confused, forgive me whether it's T-Mobile or Sprint because of the merger, so I always get that confused. So Hannah, if you could please tell us a little bit about yourself, your job title, what you do, and your preferred method of communication. I, my name is Hannah DeFelice, and um, I work for T-Mobile um, in the accessibility department. Um, I was hired under Sprint, but uh, they merged about a month after I started. Um, I am the Associate Accessibility Relationship Manager for Blind and Low Vision. Uh, and let's see, what else did you ask me? What do I do? That is such a broad question. Um, when I was hired, I was hired to work with the wireless department and I still do work with consumer wireless, but I also do a lot of the blind and low vision support across the board. So I work with um, Braille, with Relay and Captel. I work with um, customers who are having problems for one reason or another with accessibility with the website or with the apps or with their bills. Um, I help people who are, have new vision loss or, or vision and hearing loss to figure out what phone or technology will work best for them. Um, so all of those things and preferred communication methods. So for me, I definitely prefer for ASL and I use tactile, but I am very comfortable voicing um, and I use Braille for just about everything. This is Carl. When did you make a decision to disclose uh, at your job about your, your, your deaf blindness? Yeah, so that's interesting because I think they knew I was deaf. I don't think I ever disclosed, actually. So um, I learned about my job through my SSP's husband. I have a SSP who I've become a really good friends with. She's an interpreter. 
and um, friends with her family. And her husband was hired to Sprint about six months before me. And he shared that they had an opening in line low vision um, and encouraged me to apply. And I, I applied, but for whatever reason, my application, um, probably because I had employment gaps, it's a lot, or I was some, I'm fairly young, didn't get through the computer algorithm to be pulled to the manager. So he actually told the manager about me and she had to manually go in and pull my application. <laughs> So I think he also shared that I was deafblind because when they um, reached out to me for an interview, they already knew. <laughs> okay. What type of uh, accommodation do you use in your job? Okay, that's also an interesting question because when I, I started my job on March 2nd, 2020, um, and when I started, I was hired to work in person in the office with tactile interpreters. Well, we all know what happened in March of 2020. The very first thing that happened on my first day of work was that my supervisor could not travel to Massachusetts to orient me. So I worked for four days in the office with tactile interpreting before being sent home to work. Um, and I quickly had to figure out how to use cart with Braille and how to voice. Um, now, my job is a little different because most of my coworkers are deaf. And I do have a couple of other deafblind coworkers. So my job has staff interpreters. We have a contracted captioner. Um, so for meetings that are virtual, if everyone is deaf, then I sign and there's a hearing interpreter who voices to the captioner and I read the captions in Braille. For meetings where it's a mix of people, I either sign or SIM call. And for meetings where everybody is hearing except for me, I voice and use captioning. And of course, I also use technology Braille displays. I use um, CapTel phone with Braille for talking to customers. Um, a lot of the things that other people have, have mentioned in terms of technology. Are you using a screen reader? I use either JAWS or VoiceOver, but I cannot hear it. So I always use Braille. Okay, great. I think you already answered what type of technology do you use, so I'm going to skip over that. Um, do you, well, actually, do you also wear hearing aids and use assistive listening? I do not use hearing aids in the capacity of my job. Um, I do use them for environmental sound, for um, like mobility for travel. Um, I have a guide dog, but I do use hearing aids to figure out traffic in situations like that. What communication, and I think you already partly answered this, 
but what communication strategy do you use in your daily job? So I use a mix of ASL, um, CART, and voicing, depending on the situation and depending who I'm speaking to. Um, when I'm in person, I do use tactile ASL. How do, you, how do you interact with your peers? Do they perceive you as an equal? That's an interesting question. I think most of them do. Um, yeah, I actually think most of them do. You, my job is unique and that so many of the people I work with are deaf. So... You know, the vast majority of my team has a disability of some kind. Most people are deaf, but you know, also some people who are wheelchair users, some other deafblind individuals. So I think that um, that's less of an issue at my job. Uh, I will say that sometimes it's, it, it is challenging to work with um it is challenging when you're trying to cross a group of people who are very culturally deaf and a group of people who are very culturally blind. <laughs> yes, I'm laughing. <laughs> yeah. You end up always feeling like the person going back and forth and both sides sometimes are angry at you. And so that can be an issue. Um, where just people don't have a frame of reference to understand sometimes if they were born deaf, you know, how do you even describe a screen reader when you're talking to someone who was born deaf? How do you describe bread or how do you describe visual description? And then like the flip side of that is when you're talking to a blind person who uses audio for everything, how do you explain that the person you're hearing voice is the interpreter, not the person who is actually talking. So it's just a lot of really interesting situations come up. And sometimes I feel like the middleman, but I do think that overall my, um, my well, workers treat me as an equal. I, I do think that all of us in the deaf blind community who kind of fall between all those worlds are constantly trying to educate all the different community. I'm going to skip over the next question because you already answered how did you get your job, but I will ask you, you said earlier that you had gaps on your resume. Do you think that was because of your dual sensory loss or deaf blindness? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I think one of the hardest things for younger blind people um, and I'm also younger deaf people, but especially younger blind and deaf blind, is how do you get your first job? And so if so if you are in your first 10 years, 15 years of working life, if you're an able-bodied person, you probably worked at McDonald's or Starbucks, or you maybe drove an Uber or sold things from a retail store. You know, there's all these beginner jobs, entry level, you don't need anything jobs. 
but most of them require vision. It's very hard to get an entry-level position um, without a college degree as a blind person. And uh, I think that makes it very challenging because when you apply for your first few jobs out of college, they only have five years four years to look back on. And if all you were was a college student, they're like, well, you've never worked before. (laughs) So that I think um, is a problem for a lot of people. And um, I actually ended up working for a Starbucks to get an entry level position in and I had to request all kinds of accommodations. (laughs) But it was a great experience and it really helped me um, to get other jobs in the future. This is Carl. The one thing I am hearing, and I think this is also true of people without disabilities, is that the main path to gainful employment is through networking. And I actually read a statistic recently that 80% of jobs are filled because of networking. And I think that's even more true of people with disabilities. What is your, what I is definitely your, agree with that. What is your biggest challenge day to day? You know, right now, I don't even think it's, um, I mean, it is definitely connected to my deaf blindness, but it has more to do with just the world and the way we're doing things changes every five minutes. And um, those changes are hard for everybody, but they're especially hard if like, you also have to set up communication access. So like, I, one of the challenges I've found is like a meeting is in person. No, never mind, it's remote. No, it's in person again. Oh no, never mind, somebody has somebody was exposed. It's remote again, and you're like quickly changing logistics, and that's hard for everyone. But it's really hard when that means you have to change your communication requests or you have to cancel your Uber trip. <laughs> so. Um, I think that's really the biggest thing is just everything is so in flux. And finally, what successful strategies do you want to share with somebody else who may be listening that you have not already done? So, Yeah, I have, I have two um, and strategies. One is to have an interest outside of work. Um, I run and swim and compete in triathlon and I find when I have like a really hard day at work or it's, I'm really frustrated to just get completely away from that and go run on a treadmill, go swim laps, to have just something else where you don't feel like you're just so wrapped up in things. I'm a very intense person. So for me to have that kind of outlet is great. Um, And then the other thing I would suggest um, really goes back to that networking that you were talking about. And just, you never know where a connection is going to lead you in terms of Mm -hmm. helping you find jobs. So just try, and not just jobs, but other things as well. So just, you know, trying to build your network and, um, your social circle, even if you're kind of naturally more of an introvert, is just really a helpful thing to do. 
So I actually have another question, and this has nothing to do with employment. This is more from a curiosity. When you're swimming, I don't like to swim as much as I used to because I get disoriented and, and, and confused where I am when I'm swimming. How are you able to maintain your lane or, or swim when you're swimming? Um, so, so for open water swimming, I swim with a guide and we're tethered. For lap lane swimming, you know what? I have a giant scratch down my leg right now from hitting a lap lane. So you, you, you can improve at it. You can count your strokes and it gives you a pretty good sense of when you're going to hit the wall. If you have some hearing, you can play a radio on both sides so you can hear the wall coming. That doesn't work for me. Um, but honestly, I think you just have to accept you're going to hit a lane line sometimes. Okay. I would just, this is Carl. I would just curious. Um, all right, great. Thank you, Hannah. Um, I've, I've learned a lot from all three panelists so far. And last not, but not least, we're going to go to the gentleman on the panel, Scott Davitt, who also worked for the Helen Keller Natural National Center. And I believe was a former co-worker of Hannah's at T-Mobile. Uh, so Scott, do you want to introduce yourself, give us your job title, Tell us a little bit about what you do and your preferred style of communication. Sure. Good afternoon, Carl and everyone. Gentlemen, I, I, I think you don't know me very well, very well yet, Carl. <laughs> we'll see how you feel at the end of this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it's kind of like old times in some ways. Uh, Hannah and I were, were co-workers for quite a while. We worked in different departments, but we were both at T-Mobile Accessibility. Um, Right now, as you said, I work for the Helen Keller National Center. Uh, I took this job in February, so it's still pretty new. Uh, my job title is coordinator of the Technology Research and Innovation Center, which is a new center that is not fully up and running yet. In fact, uh, we're getting ready to move things from one uh, place in the training building over to where the uh, center will be housed and uh, a lot of what I do, of course, involves technology and research, and we hope innovating. Uh, but the areas I work with are primarily interacting with companies, uh, for example, uh, Apple, um, Amazon, Google, those companies in the mainstream, but also working with uh, adaptive technology companies, both you know, the, what we would call, I guess, the heavy hitters and also, uh, you know, those companies who are up and coming, which there are some. Um, I also do training of HKNC staff from time to time, uh, you know, consulting, those types of things come up. I, um, we're going to be organizing train the trainers seminars for people who are in the field. Uh, we did one not too long ago with I Can Connect partners of HKNC, but uh, we'll be looking at doing a lot more of those on different areas. Um, and I write technology evaluations, which I've been doing for years. Um, I just now do it as part of my day job. Uh, I used to write Braille review, Braille display reviews mainly, although I did some other tech reviews for uh, the Access World magazine through AFB, if you're familiar with that. Communication style, kind of like everybody else on the panel. I am going to use different strategies 
and different tools depending on the situation. For example, right now I have what's called a TV connector connected to the computer. That's feeding the audio signal to my hearing aids. That's the only way I'm able to hear you. Um, but I am actually using speech uh, only partially. I'm actually following the captioning um, on the cart, which is working very well, by the way. And I very much appreciate that ACB is uh, making that available. Um, so it, it can sometimes also be Rochester method where you fingerspell stuff. Uh, it could be text messaging. You know, I do a lot of that. Um, I obviously talk and use my hearing aids in my environment, my immediate environment. Um, and when I'm presenting, I use some different forms of touch signals, which I can expand a little bit on if you want. And I think that about answers it. When you say touch signals, do you mean haptic feedback? Correct. Okay. Um, hold on a second. I'm, I lost my place on my screen readers. When did, so I, again, this question is probably somewhat mute because you work at the Helen Keller National Center, but when did you make a decision to disclose your disability? Well, let me, let me uh, back up just a little bit and let you know that I apply for a minimum of one new job a year. Not always, by the way, because I want a new job. Uh, part of it is just making sure that when I, for example, work with consumers in whatever role I'm playing, I kind of have an idea of what's going on in the market currently, in the job market, so that, I mean... If you don't keep current on these things, how in the heck can you possibly advise somebody on it? Uh, in terms of disclosure, it, it's contextual. Uh, for example, when I was work, when I applied for the job working at T-Mobile Accessibility, um, I guess I was kind of an unknown uh, because they, unlike Hannah, they didn't know I was deafblind. Uh, but what I did was I didn't disclose it at all on the uh, on my resume. Didn't put it on the cover letter. Uh, but it had to be addressed when it came to doing the interview, which was through distance um, communication. And, um, you know, obviously, you if you have communication preferences that you can't completely set up for yourself, you have to disclose that information in order to make the interview a success. Um, you know, that's usually how I work with it. I don't disclose the disability until seems appropriate and when you go to a job interview that's usually appropriate uh, to let them know for any sort of communication needs that you may have or accommodations that you may need uh, you can and i have done this you can pay for your own ssp for example out of pocket if you want somebody to guide you and things like that um so, you know, there's other ways around it. You can even show up and surprise them, although I don't necessarily recommend that only because they may be so focused on your disability that they can't really conduct a good interview with you uh, and give you even a fair shot if they want to. So I think you've already answered this a little bit, but what type of reasonable accommodation do you use and what type of assistive technology do you use? Do you have three hours? 
I think we're done at 515. Yeah, um, well, yeah. <laughs> so I use an assistive listening device as needed. And I use that when I'm in person um, at meetings and uh, things like that, which has worked out pretty well, um, depending on what I'm doing. Um, but the uh, technology I use regularly is a Braille display. The one I use is called the Mantis Q. It's a Braille display with an actual QWERTY keyboard like you have on your computer. Um, I use that. I use JAWS, um, and I use uh, I have a Pearl camera, which is another um, Vespero product, and uh, I use that for um, converting printed text to uh, digital text. So do, do, that's pretty much it. Go ahead. So I know, <laughs> Carl, I know like if there are certain things that I ask that I don't always use technology, like I may ask individuals at my work to one of the things I have to look at is variant, uh, variant request for the architectural guidelines in Massachusetts. And I can't read architectural drawings to see what an architect wants to do. So I have my employer, my employees, my coworkers sit there and read to me what they're looking at. Do you ever use accommodations that are not technology-based? Oh, yeah. Um, I uh, We just hired an assistant for me since I'll be head of the department and there'll be three or four others working with me eventually. Um, but there are certainly no drawings like what you have. But let's say, for example, I'm evaluating a product, okay? And in order to proceed to the next step, you have to see the blinking red light or the green light or whatever it may be. And there may not be any way for you to non-visually access that information. So that's when I enlist the help of a coworker. Uh, I've used as well Be My Eyes, which is an app for iOS and Android. Um, Area, which is another app that's out there. I, I know I keep bringing it back as technology, but um, sometimes those types of tools come in handy, but sometimes there's really nothing better than having somebody who knows your communication preferences, knows the information you're looking for, um, and can give you that information quickly. And so that's part of what my assistant does, kind of like what Megan was saying, where yeah, the person's an assistant, but they're also, you know, doing administrative tasks, uh, you know, like sometimes uh, filing paperwork, ensuring that the papers that I'm filing are formatted correctly, those types of things. So, yeah, um, definitely do enlist the help of fellow human beings. Great. Is there any specific communication style that you use in your job that you want to share with folks? It sounds like you're mostly oral and you receive your stuff through cart and orally also, but it's a. Yeah, mostly. Yeah, mostly. I, I have the signing vocabulary of a two-year-old. <laughs> so unless I want to throw a tantrum, which would probably get me fired, I uh, probably better not do that as my main means of communication. But, um, you know, a lot of the, a lot of things I do, as you said, it's uh, I'm obviously I can speak. Although if I make any sense, well, that's a whole nother story. Um, and the thing that I have found is that technology, again, doesn't solve all of our problems, but uh, I have used, I use technology a lot to kind of go between different types of communication styles. For example, I have deaf coworkers 
um, who obviously can't hear me speak, probably better for them. And so we use text messages to communicate or Microsoft Teams uh, or fingerspelling, but I know a lot of people don't enjoy fingerspelling. It is rather slow. And of course, I use Braille. Um, you know, there's a, there's a system called finger braille. I don't get to use it often here in the States, but, uh, basically you put your fingers on top of someone else's fingers. You have dots one, two, three on your left hand dots three or sorry, four, five, six on your right. And you can basically braille back and forth. Uh, I don't know how effective I would be at it right now because I don't really know anybody else that's using it here uh, in the United States. Uh, but it's another method that's, uh, you know, I try to keep available, try to use all my tools effectively. How do you use Microsoft Teams? Uh, JAWS or the Braille display, um, or because I don't for everything uh, with a chat facility. Uh, I typically use my iPhone for that simply because the interface is much more easy to navigate and I don't have to keep track of uh, you know the uh, focus jumping around with the uh, the chat area so it depends on what i'm doing with it okay but you said you interact with your deaf co-workers so there must be a signer acting as the intermediary or communicator between the two of you there must be a what i'm sorry uh, 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 an interpreter when, when yeah. you interact with the deaf community you have an interpreter a lot of the time, yes. Um, not all the time, though, because, uh, you know, like I can finger spell and we do text. But yes, if, um, you know, there are interpreters required. I even in some cases will have a voiceover interpreter. Uh, for example, um, I was when I was working with uh, T-Mobile Accessibility, um, a lot of their developers uh, have strong accents. And of course, with a hearing loss, you know, you're going to struggle anyway to to follow speech that you're used to. But when you start introducing accents, it becomes a much greater challenge. Um, I, I really don't mean that to sound discriminatory at all. Um, so what I've done in those cases is get a, a voiceover interpreter and uh, T-Mobile accessibility had no problem at all with my doing that when I explain the reason why, which is, you know, one of those things that I have to do from time to time. And I think most people do is explain why a certain accommodation is necessary. Uh, assuming you get to that point, I've encountered over the years, some employers who've been a little less cooperative than others. Mr. Carl, how do your peers interact with you? Do they treat you as an equal? They usually throw stuff at me. Um, you know, <laughs> I don't blame them, but that's kind of a problem when you're not uh, in person. Um, okay. We, we um, like I said, you know, a lot of the interaction is just how, whatever works. And uh, I know you were asking about uh, as an equal, I really don't know. I mean, I, I can't read people's minds uh, as far as I know most people do. And if they don't, that's okay. Like, you know, I'm no better or worse than anybody else. So if you don't uh, appreciate my opinion or you don't, like what I have to say, that's okay. I'm not for everyone. I'm fine with that. How did you get your current job? <laughs> that's kind of a long story, but um, originally I went to HKNC in 2006 as a student. And I went there because of a scholarship that HKNC had at the time. Unfortunately, they no longer do. 
and we have what were called self-directed studies, or as some people call them self-directed sleep. And uh, I had those available to me as well. However, I understood even at that point that, you know, it's great to get work experience, whatever the heck it might be. You know, it, it doesn't matter. Uh, it, it's let's get something on the resume, especially when you're first starting out. So, of course, you know, I had taught myself a lot of the technology things I know uh, even to date. And so in 2006, I started volunteering my self-directed study time to help out students in the uh, tech department. And, you know, kind of as a way to say thanks for the scholarship, because otherwise I wouldn't have been able to get the training I needed. And so uh, that led to internships, which led to several other positions with HKNC before I left that I had. But ultimately, because I had that experience, and apparently they don't mind putting up with me out here, uh, here I am again, uh, back with them doing a job that I don't know that I dreamed I could have ever, you know, found. <coughs> what is the biggest challenge you face on a daily basis? Hmm. Probably, especially when I was traveling a lot uh, for T-Mobile, uh, more so than now. But basically, um, Megan touched on this, having to prove yourself all the time. Uh, for example, I was on an airplane a couple of years ago. I think I was living in Charlotte at the time. Uh, I was flying back from L.A. or I don't remember where now. Doesn't matter. And. I was on the plane just doing my own thing, and the steward, uh, the flight attendant, one of them came back to me and said, um, the pilot doesn't think you should be on this flight. <laughs> I was like, hmm, well, that's interesting. I kind of think I should be, you know, kind of trying to be lighthearted about it. I already knew where this was going, unfortunately. So anyway, um, I said, look, I, I really I promise you I'm not going to cause a scene, but if it would be OK and the pilot is comfortable with it, I would like to have a short chat with the pilot before anything happens, because basically they were going to try to argue that I couldn't communicate with them. So uh, for safety reasons, I couldn't fly. I already knew that was where we were going. Um, so the pilot came back and I said, Okay, before you make this decision, I just want to make a few things clear to you. First, I have well over 50,000 air miles at this point. I, I fly two to three weeks out of every month. Second of all, obviously, I'm communicating with you. I'm talking to you, and I interacted with you. And, oh, by the way, I pulled up the safety instructions on my phone, and I started reading them in the, the flight attendant-type voice and uh, he was like, okay, well, I think that the technology you have is really cool. And, uh, you know, I just wanted to make sure you could communicate with, uh, the crew. And to me, it really felt like, you know, I have to prove myself. I'm, I'm here, I'm doing what I need to do. I'm taking care of business, but I still have to prove myself to these people. You know, I, I can never sit back on a flight and just relax because there's always that question. Can he communicate? How will he communicate? Uh, and of course, sometimes the communication fails. Uh, if I'm on a really loud plane and I don't have my Bluetooth keyboard ready with my iPhone, 
I may not hear a flight attendant. So what I've done to kind of address that is when I get on a plane, I'll say once the doors are closed, so they won't throw me off. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad to say I did not learn that one the hard way. Um, But I just say to one of the flight attendants, I say, look, I can hear you just fine. But half the time, I don't know if you're talking to me, especially if I have, you know, my hearing aids on a different mode. If you can please just put your hand on my shoulder or tap me to get my attention, uh, then we'll be good to go. And that uh, that strategy has worked. But, you know, sort of generalizing this, it it feels that way in a lot of situations in society, you know. Um, there's always this question of, can you communicate? Can you do this? Can you do that? And then if I'm with somebody, it's, can he do this? Can he do that? And most of my friends know to uh, come up with a smart aleck, smart aleck answer uh, and then tell basically tell them to ask me. So sorry if that was a little longer of a story than you wanted, but I just thought that was a, and lastly, know, an important point. And lastly and quickly, what's the successful strategy do you want to share with anybody who may be listening? You know, a lot of, you know, we're focusing on employment and assuming you already have your first job and getting your first job is always the hardest. But what I want to uh, address is pooling your resources prior to your job. And this, we've talked about networking and that's great. You absolutely must do that. But the ways in which you network it, uh, network may need to be a little more creative than what a sighted and hearing uh, potential employee has to do. Uh, you know, that networking can't always necessarily be carried out in a large, crowded environment if you have a hearing impairment or uh, you may not have interpreters available if you require sign language. So you have to revert to alternative means. Uh, use your resources. For example, LinkedIn is a is a pretty up and you know running thing that a lot of people use for employment opportunities. Search around on LinkedIn, find people who are in the field that you want to go into and and don't harass them, but you know, if you have specific questions, you can always reach out and don't don't over indulge yourself and talk about yourself for hours and hours, but just say something like hi, my name is blah, 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 and I'm interested in a career in whatever their career is and see what you get out of that. You might be able to build part of a network that way, get some informational interviews and get a real sense for what in the heck it is that you would be doing in this job. And finally, um, when you're doing the job search and then you find something you want to apply for, when you do that on the, either the application or your resume, depending on how they are having you do this, some don't want an actual resume. They want you to fill out information. Um, look at the job description and make sure you throw some of those keywords from the job description into your resume. And the reason I say that, uh, somebody brought up the algorithm. I think it was Hannah. Yeah, it was Hannah. You need to, that's one of the things you need to do. Put those keywords in your resume so that uh, it will ping whoever would look at those uh, to actually do so. Um, The big thing, though, don't give up. Every day is a challenge. It always has been. It always will be. And that's just life. You know, Um, every day is not going to be easy. I definitely don't want to sit here and say that. But on the other hand, you have a choice to make. You can either not not go for employment or go for employment, but whichever direction you choose, 
choose it and go with it and run with it because, uh, you know, doing things sort of, eh, kind of, maybe sort of that, that will be reflected in what you're doing. You know, your enthusiasm or lack thereof when you interact with potential employers, that sort of thing. So, and don't be afraid to get out there, do some of your own research and learn a new skill. You know, if you're unemployed, and I understand implying applying for jobs can be a full time job, but try to try to learn new skills. Find out what in your field that you are interested in going into. What do you need, and go with it. You know, uh, start trying to pick up those skills. Because remember, if you have a disability, you already have a strike against you. I know, technically, legally. You're not supposed to, but the simple fact of the matter is you do. So you have to be better than everybody else and try harder and and do more. Uh, You know, I have um, I did a lot of schooling and and did a lot of uh, work while I was in school for that purpose. One, networking, two, building my own skills, and then three, um, applying them to what I'm doing. So I hope some of that helps. Right. Uh, lastly, do you have any contact information? Well, I'm currently on um, medical leave of absence, so I will give my personal email since I'm not checking my work email. And uh, that is... You really can't do that. Okay. They don't really want personal emails given out. Okay. Well, I'll give my uh, work one. That is uh, Scott, S-C-O-T-T dot D-A-V-E-R-T at hknc.org. Okay. Uh, we heard from four incredible inspirational panelists. How, I know we've had a long session. Karen, do you think we should open up the questions and just keep plowing ahead? Uh, I, let's definitely open it up for questions. Okay. I uh, forget the name of the uh, facilitator on this. The host, Katie. Katie? I'm Katie. I'm Katie, your host. Uh, what I'd like to do is go over the rules for raising your hands and then what will happen when I call on you to raise your hand on the computer. It's alt Y on the Mac. It's option Y on the app. It's in the center of the screen. And on your landline, it's going to be star nine. When I acknowledge you, you will unmute on the computer, it will be Alt-A. On the Mac, it will be Command-Shift-A. On your app, it will be in the center of the screen. And on your phone, it will be star six. And what Karen and Carl have asked is that when I unmute you, please identify yourself for the captioning. Okay, so area code 715. Hello, this is Ramsey Lee from Wisconsin. I don't know if I caught everything. What would you say are some of the most, and call and repeat. What are some of the most in-demand skills? Uh, In-demand skills? What are you most proud of in your current position? What are you most proud of in your current position? And if you can give your name when you do, for those of us that are on the phone, that'd be great. 
you could give your name too for the rest of us on the phone, that'd be great. This is Carl. Do any of the remaining panelists want to answer that? This is Scott. Go ahead, Scott. Um, I what am I proud of? Well, I'm I'm proud to be building something new and to be part of something that is new and that I feel that has been needed for a very long time in terms of, you know, um, spreading awareness of people have uh, different forms of deaf blindness when it comes to technology so that uh, manufacturers can actually take that into consideration. Of course, some will work uh, with that better than others, but uh, it's something that I'm proud of that not only is this happening, but that I'm able to be a part of it. Not all of it, of course, because I'm going to have a whole team, but I'm part of it. And I think that's something to be proud of. And Scott, do you have a phone number? Oh, this is Scott. I don't think we're allowed to give those out. And I don't have a work, uh, I have a work text number, but I don't have an actual we are voice not. line. Okay, that's what I thought. Thanks. Okay, I would just like to connect with you afterwards somehow, but thanks. Any other questions? No other hands. Okay. Carl? Yeah, this is Carl. Go ahead. Yeah. I, I just want to uh, underline and emphasize both what Scott and Megan sent, said earlier. Um, the message that we get from the Sighted and Hearing Society about our abilities and our value as people um, are corrosive, I have found. And I have spent a lot of time in therapy myself, uh, trying to make sure that uh, I don't go into shame or depression or, um, sort of self-criticizing uh, um, as a result of that. And I think, it, I think we sometimes overemphasize the importance of reasonable accommodation and assistive technology, not that they're not important, they are. But the most important thing, I think, in employment or anything else is to be able to feel good about yourself uh, and to ask for what you need and not feel bad about it because those vibes are picked up. If you don't feel good about yourself, the person interviewing you isn't going to feel good about yourself either. And if you don't feel good about yourself, you're not going to ask for what you need and you're not going to advocate effectively for yourself. So I think in addition to learning technology, whichever type of technology you need for employment, if you have the health insurance coverage, um, I think it's worth 
doing some time for therapy. If you, if you struggle with self-esteem, if you struggle with depression or anxiety, because uh, that will pay dividends in the end. And I've had to do that. Um, I've even been hospitalized in a mental institution. Um, and, you know, it's, it's paid off. I mean, I've had a great career. And uh, so I have no complaints. But I think that's an aspect of our own uh, sense of being alive in the world that we need to deal with. And I'll get off my soapbox. Thanks very much. This is Carl. Thank you, Christopher. Karen, do you have anything to add? I do not at this point. I think Chris was right on, though, because you do have to feel good about yourself because otherwise that's going to show in how you carry yourself. Absolutely. So I want to, along with Karen and the rest of the members of the SASE committee, we have several members, and so I don't do any injustice to anyone. I'm not going to name them all because I know I'll forget somebody, but they were part of putting together this panel. And I want to thank all the members of the SASE committee, the Sight and Sound Impaired Committee at ACB. And I want to especially thank all the panelists, Carrie Thompson, Hannah DeFilippe, Megan Conway, and Scott Davitt, along with Christopher Bell for taking part in this important panel. And I also want to thank Cindy the Captioner, who helped make this meeting accessible to all who needed it. Thank you very much, everybody, and have a good afternoon. And before we leave, oh, we'll thank you, the, uh, closing code 69489. That is 69489. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Have a great day. You do the same.